Hi, folks. Welcome back to Vox Tablet, the weekly podcast of Tablet Magazine. I'm Julie Subrin. Today, let's talk about sex. Ultra-Orthodox Jews have sex through a hole in the sheet, right? Well, actually, that's a misconception, one of many outsiders have about sex within the Haredi community. That said, it is true that the high value placed on modesty in that community sometimes gets in the way of providing essential information about sexual intimacy. That's where Dr. David Ribner comes in. Dr. Ribner is an Orthodox sex therapist working in Jerusalem. He also happens to be my father's cousin. Ribner specializes in counseling Orthodox and ultra-Orthodox couples and singles on everything from wedding night jitters to sexual disorders. And he's co-authored the first sex manual written specifically for strictly religious Jews. On today's podcast, Vox Tablet contributor Daniel Estrin is talking with Dr. Ribner about his work. This conversation is the first in a new series we're calling Hidden Jerusalem. Over the course of the next few months, with Daniel's help, we're going to be peeling back the layers that cloak this monumental mythical city. We'll be looking at familiar sites and neighborhoods from new angles and striking up conversations about things that are usually hushed. First stop, Dr. David Ribner's sex therapy practice in downtown Jerusalem. Warning, and I don't think this is going to come as a big surprise, this conversation does include sexually explicit language. Okay, I'm on my way to Dr. Ribner's office, uh, walking down Jaffa Road, the main road in Jerusalem that sort of marks the border between downtown Jerusalem and the main ultra-Orthodox Jewish neighborhoods of Masharim and Geula. There's a sign here advertising a sex shop, big red letters spelling out sex shop, sex, love, but you can barely read it because it's been all scratched out. The shop went out of business. Now there are no sex shops left in Jerusalem. If you want lubricants or vibrators, though, um, you can talk to Dr. Ribner. He tells me he keeps a stash in his office if his patients ever need them. Hey, hi. Hey, thanks so much. Like a coffee Could, or tea or something before we start? Um, water would be great, Kitchen's actually. right over there. Yeah. David Ribner is a thin man with sunken eyes, a bushy beard, and a knitted yarmulke atop his head. His office is small and cozy, just like you'd imagine a couple's therapist's office to be. Except there's no couch. There are two chairs, a small coffee table, a package of tissues. Along the walls, he's got an unusual collection of books. On one side, you've got the sex books. Like one of the most famous is The Guide to Getting It On, as well as the number of editions of The Joy of Sex, which people may know from previous editions. Even Fifty Shades of Grey. Fifty Shades of Grey I was sort of forced into buying because my clients asked me if I'd read it. And then there are volumes of Jewish religious texts. A full set of Chumashim, uh, Mishnah Berurah, uh, uh, the Rambams, and uh, Mishnah Torah. I can't think of any other bookshelf I've ever seen where you have the Talmud right next to the guide to getting it on. Uh, there probably aren't any. I, can, I can't tell you that there are other people who necessarily have this, but I think it does reflect at least what uh, I think is the central perspective of how religious Judaism sees sexuality, which is a very positive aspect of people's lives. So I settled down in the patient's chair for a frank conversation about sex. Dr. Ribner, I'm sitting here on the same chair that your patients sit on when, when they come to seek your advice about sex. I can imagine they're probably very nervous when they sit here for the first time. What are they like on that first meeting? I have to say that I'm almost never the first stop. In other words, since almost all of my clients are religious, either modern Orthodox and then 
fully to the right of that, including Hasidic or people who learn in the yeshiva world, uh, generally they will go to someone else before they'll come to me. Chances are they'll go to their premarital advisor, they'll go to the rabbi or to the rabbi's wife, they'll go to someone else who may be a, some community functionary before they'll get to me. So they've already told their story more than once, even if it doesn't go into the same detail that I might request of them. I think what happens in this office is that people tend to be so much in distress when they come in, just the opportunity to begin to talk about it and know that no one's going to in any way give them any negative response. I mean, I always say to them, I'm not your rabbi. I'm not here to say anything about your religious observance. I'm here to try to get you through the stressful area in your life. Generally, that gives people a sense of they want to be open about it. You were speaking earlier about the premarital advisors. Can you tell me a little bit more about them and what advice they're giving? That's a sensitive area. Um, many of us in, who are sexual health professionals are not particularly happy with this relatively new format within the Jewish community. I mean, this, when I got married, there was no such person as a premarital advisor. It's a new functionary in the community. And one of the issues is that there really isn't any quality control. In other words, if you want to be a rabbi in the community, you have to study for a goodly number of years in a rabbinic seminary. You have to pass exams. People know you. I mean, so you can establish yourself as a rabbi. Anybody can call themselves a premarital advisor without any official uh, certification from anyone. And particularly when we're talking about an area in which not just information is important, but attitude is important, you really never know what your child is hearing or how they're hearing it. I wonder if you can give some examples of um, sample sentences that some of these advisors you've heard have said to clients. Well, let me just give you one example, which I think is sort of indicative. And that is an advisor who tells his people that uh, marital intimacy is like watermelon. You can think about that for a minute. Uh, what's the comparison between marital intimacy and watermelon? Well, what she's saying to them is, what she says to them is that, well, just like you can eat watermelon every day of the week, but you should just save it for the Sabbath, so marital intimacy you can have every day of the week, but you should, we should save it for the Sabbath. I mean, that's a message that I think is on so many levels counterproductive, and that unless people are really said, listen, you know, really taught, this can be a wonderful part of your life, and it's a way that you can connect that nothing else can can even match, and and sex should always be good, and sometimes it's even going to be fireworks. I mean, unless that kind of message is conveyed, then they're absolutely not doing their job. I think a lot of people, in at least in the U.S., and, and even Jews who are not Orthodox, have this idea that Orthodox Jews don't have sex for pleasure, and that ultra-Orthodox Jews are so concerned about modesty that they have sex through a hole in the bedsheet. Is there any grain of truth to that? So let me talk a little bit about how traditional Judaism sees sexuality. Uh, and it sees sexuality really based on two fundamental pillars. One is, of course, procreation, as any ethnic group will have to ensure coming generations. And that's, that's a critical one. But of equal importance within traditional Judaism, and I'm talking about sources like the Talmud and various rabbinic authorities since then, is also the notion of mutual pleasure that the notion of each partner providing sexual pleasure for the other is fundamental to Jewish belief. And that is across the board. It doesn't matter whether you're Orthodox or ultra-Orthodox. That's part of that belief system. Now, I will say this unequivocally. There has never been a group of Jews anywhere in the world 
that has advocated having sex through a hole in the sheep. That has never happened. It doesn't happen today. It never happened in history. The only record I've ever seen is someone sent me a, um, a copy of a emergency room report from a hospital in the States with the names crossed out where apparently a young couple had come in. Both of them were newly religious and not very well educated who thought this was the right thing to do and had caused physical damage to their genitals and therefore had to come to the emergency room when they tried to have sex through a hole in a sheet. It is not done anywhere in the Jewish community. It's not advocated in any text anywhere within the Jewish community. How it got started, we can only speculate. Uh, for anyone who's wandered around, for example, one of the, the religious neighborhoods in Jerusalem, like Meir Sha'arim, um, you might have seen their quilt covers where the quilts are inserted through a diamond-shaped hole on one of the surfaces of the quilt. So if those are hanging up on a line, you might think it's a sheet with a hole in it. It's not. The sex through a sheet is, is a myth, as you say. But sex is a taboo subject in the ultra-Orthodox and Orthodox Jewish communities. Why is sex so secretive? I wouldn't say necessarily that sex is taboo, but I think communication about sex needs to be put in a particular cultural context. The prophet Micah talks about walking in modesty before your God. And that notion of modesty there is really in terms of the way you conduct your life. You should live your life as a modest person. The most outward manifestation one would see in religious communities is how people dress. They dress in modest ways. But this notion of modesty is pervasive. It means, you know, don't live a flashy life. You know, don't do anything that's going to call attention to yourself in a way that would be inappropriate. So how that gets translated into something sexual has been an issue of discussion over the generations. And the notion here is that sex is appropriate only within a marital context. But beyond that, it's not talked about. Because of that, it's become very difficult for people to have any kind of dialogue about that. I, that gets, I think, translated as well into the lack of parent-child dialogue. Now, I don't think that's unique to the Jewish community. For example, when I uh, present at international conferences and my audience is almost exclusively not Jewish, and I always ask uh, if I have 200 people there, how many of you were uh, blessed with having a sexual conversation with your parents when you were growing up? If among those 200 people, five people raise their hands, that's really the norm. So I think we grew up in a time when parents don't talk to their children about sex. Let's talk about your book. It's called uh, Et Lehov, A Time to Love, The Newlyweds Guide to Physical Intimacy. Uh, you co-wrote it last year with Jenny Rosenfeld of Yeshiva University. And you say it's the first Orthodox Jewish sex guide of its kind. Now, I know that there are booklets you can find in religious neighborhoods in, in Masha'arim, uh, ultra-Orthodox neighborhoods of Jerusalem, for instance, that are labeled for women only, for men only, um, which I can only assume are some kind of sex guides. What, what are those books? So, uh, first of all, a lot of them have to do a lot more with a, a general sense of intimacy, not so much about the specifics of sexuality. Okay, If they do talk about sexuality, it's in its highly metaphoric language. One of the decisions that we made when we set out to write this book was that we use no metaphoric language, okay? Penis, vagina, you know, I mean, any kind of language that we need to be in terms of specificity, we use that. We also made a determination early on to not request any rabbinic approbation for this book. 
In other words, many books that are published that you talk about will have in their introduction a number of rabbis who approve of this book. We decided not to do that. Um, we didn't want to be identified with any particular camp, and we decided to take our chances with regard to that. That allowed us a certain level of freedom, which you won't find in other books. For example, we do discuss oral sex, both for him and for her. Now, you won't find that in any of the kind of guides that you were describing before. In addition, if you take a look at the book, at the end, there's an envelope. And in that envelope are very explicit diagrams uh, of male and female genitalia, as well as three sex positions. Maybe let's take a look at it, because when I was reading the book, um, you know, the, the first thing that strikes you here is that you flip through it and absolutely no pictures, no diagrams, which you'd think would be essential in a, in a sex guide. So tell me what's in the, in the back flap here. Right, well, let me, read the, let me read the back flap when it says, says, Note, this envelope contains illustrations that are meant to accompany the text and to clarify certain points with regard to male and female sexual anatomy and sexual positions. These illustrations are therefore explicit, and each person should take this into account before viewing the drawings. And we put them in an envelope because if someone really feels that they might be offended by them, they can take the envelope off and throw it away. Well, let's open it. Okay. So I'm opening a copy here that I've given to Daniel, and um, okay, we have two illustrations of male and female genitalia. These are not as detailed as some other illustrations may be from other manuals. Again, we wanted to make this as simple as possible with regard to achieving some basic understanding of how genitalia work. And then we have three more illustrations, which are for sexual positions. The first is illustration of the missionary position. And again, what we wanted to give people a sense of sort of where, not only to put their sexual organs, but where to put their arms and legs. And if you don't know this, if you never saw a movie, if you never read a book, if you have no idea what to do, then how are you supposed to know what to do? We have another illustration of the female on top position. And again, you know, giving a clear sense of where to put arms, where to put legs, before we even talk about dealing with what actual penetration is supposed to look like. And a third diagram is more of a rear entry position. We're talking about a population that has many children. We want to give an illustration of where a position could be useful so that there wouldn't be any uh, pressure on the woman's belly. And this is, a, this is one of those examples. When she's pregnant, you mean? When she's pregnant, yeah. It's, this is a position that's available even when she's not, but it's helpful also when she is. Right. And in this diagram, she's, she's pictured she's, as pregnant. She's clearly pregnant, yes. Now, these are all, I mean, for lack of a better term, stick figures. We don't see any faces. Um, they're very, very simple drawings. What was the idea behind that? We wanted this to be acceptable to the widest possible population with the least risk of being in any way offensive. We did, in fact, consult many other sex manuals to see what kind of illustrations they used, and we felt that those were just too graphic to be comfortable with people who had really no previous contact with this aspect of their lives. What struck me about reading your book was how incredibly basic it is. Actually, I'd like you to read one of, one of the first passages in the book, if you don't mind. It may seem obvious, but it is important to stress that no two bodies are exactly alike. Each person's body looks different from any other, and each may respond differently to the same types of stimulation. While you may have certain expectations about the ideal appearance, your spouse's body will likely look different than you might imagine. 
In contrast to a woman's body, much of the male body is generally covered with hair. The male body is also shaped differently than the female body. The male torso is generally shaped like an upside-down triangle, widest at the shoulders and narrower at the hips, while the female torso is shaped like a pear, narrower on the top and wider at the hips, and more curvaceous in the male body. Body weight is distributed differently in each sex, so be prepared not to face your mirror image when you see your spouse without clothing. You know, if you grew up getting a secular education, these are things that you'd be learning maybe as a sixth grader, not not as someone in his late teens or early 20s um, getting ready for his wedding night. How did you figure out just how basic you needed to be in these descriptions? We started with the notion that we needed to be very basic. Theoretically, within the religious community, neither couple will have had any kind of sexual experience and even any kind of touch other than first-rank relatives, parents, uh, brother, sister, is forbidden with someone in the, in the opposite sex. So we're assuming people have no tactile experience and no visual experience. In addition to which, uh, again, the sources of information are going to be highly limited the more you get more religious, the more limited the information is going to be. We wanted there to be a place where people could say to themselves, I know nothing and I need to know something. Your book includes frequently asked questions that Orthodox couples ask about sex, which are based on your 40 plus years counseling couples and singles. Is there a particular issue that your clients grapple with where there's a gray area about whether or not a sex act is permitted according to religious law? Jewish law is very explicit about with whom you can have sex. That means only a married partner. And when you can have sex, during those times of the month when it's, when it's allowable. But it says very little about what is permissible or not. And as a general rule, uh, Orthodox Judaism will try as much as possible to stay out of the bedroom. If an activity is acceptable to both members of the marital partner... Nobody needs to know about it, okay? Now, there are various subgroups within the Orthodox community. There's not necessarily one particular persuasion with regard to this. And there may be some groups which will say some activities are more frowned upon than others, right? For example, oral sex. But my own personal experience in dealing with couples is if they have a question within Jewish law about something I may recommend to them, and I say, fine, have your rabbi call me, Almost always, when I explain to the rabbi what I'm doing and why I'm doing it, I'll get a green light. To the extent that there are some rabbis within the ultra-Orthodox community here in Jerusalem who will say, well, if Dr. Ribner says you need to do it, I don't need to know what it is. I trust him already. You can follow his advice. That's taken a long time to build up. But again, my general impression is that this is the rabbinic establishment sees sexual compatibility as so important that they're willing to make use of the built-in flexibility to say, maybe 10 years down the line, you might want to have something that's more strict in your life, but let's make sure this works for you now. Is there any talk about masturbation? Do rabbis talk about that to students? There's a lot of talk about masturbation. Again, depending upon the specific um, rabbi or the specific context in which you may be talking about it, you may get various shades of understanding. And there may be a difference also whether you're talking about male masturbation or female masturbation. 
for example, there may be situations in which I'm dealing or someone is dealing with someone who suffers from some kind of developmental retardation or someone who's going through a very long-term psychotic episode in which our concern is that if there isn't some kind of sexual release, there may be the risk of inappropriate behavior with others. Okay, So in that situation, it would not necessarily be unusual for there to be a sense of agreement that in this case masturbation will reduce the sexual tension and allow a person not to in any way be a threat to the people around him. Okay. Uh, similarly, sometimes I will make use of some kind of masturbation, either for him or for her. For example, women who have difficulty reaching orgasm during intercourse, uh, possibly because a lack of understanding of how their own body functions, I will give them sort of a course of body awareness, including masturbation, so they have a better sense of how they, together with her husbands, can help her achieve sexual satisfaction, okay? Um, on the other hand, and I will say honestly that there are, there are within the broad spectrum of the Orthodox community, those who will say that under no circumstances is, is, or is masturbation permissible. If that's the case, then I'll try to deal with it in some other way. I mean, I certainly won't argue with rabbinic authority that doesn't bring anybody uh, to any kind of peaceful resolution. And just briefly explain why why a rabbi would be against masturbation. Okay. So there's a general prohibition about spilling of the seed. That's the story of Er and Onan uh, in the book of Genesis. And, I, I mean, again, there are various understandings of that. But one understanding is that ejaculation should be an aspect of a marital interaction. On the other hand, there is certainly an awareness that is an aspect of adolescent development just just about every adolescent goes through that. I mean, we know that. Every rabbi knows that. It's one of the reasons why there are early marriages. You know, you want sexuality to happen in a bedroom with a partner, not by yourself. And I'd like to try to understand, are rabbis and yeshivas and, and religious institutions telling their 13, 14, 15-year-old pupils um, explicitly from the pulpit, let's say, uh, no masturbation? Is this something spoken about openly to young students? Uh, yes, not so much from the pulpit, but certainly in the classroom context it will be spoken about, or an individual discussion with one of the rabbis in a yeshiva environment, yes. And the general message will be that this is behavior which is should be avoided if it can be avoided. I think there's more of a sense of don't feel that if this does happen, you're damned for life. That message is no longer, as far as I can hear, part of the kind of teaching that's involved. But as a general assumption this is a negative behavior that's still part of the of the environment in your book there's a chapter titled when your sex life isn't working um and there's a subheading labeled homosexuality uh it's a section that's just four sentences long which seems like nothing for an issue that is so complex and charged in the religious community and one that is potentially confusing for your readers what advice do you give to an observant jewish patient who is gay or lesbian? People will come to me sometimes. I mean, they they're clearly feel that their only sexual interest is in a same-sex uh, partner, and can I help them change? And no, I can't. To my, the best of my professional knowledge, uh, this is a hard-wired issue, whatever it comes from. And if someone is gay, they're gay. If they're lesbian, they're lesbian. And uh, I can't 
I can't change them. I don't know anyone who can change them. And I certainly would never refer them to anyone who thinks they can change them. I mean, by the dozens and dozens of dozens of research that's been done on this, there is no change model. And change models which purport to be such tend to be damaging and may even cause you know, uh, people to feel suicidal because of that. And what advice would you give to someone sitting here who says, I'd like to get married to a member of the opposite sex? I'm only attracted to a member of the same sex. I want sexual satisfaction. I also want to be part of the Orthodox community. What advice can you give them? So I've had couples come to me where, let's say, the man is gay and his wife is heterosexual. Um, Because they're religious, they've had no physical contact before their marriage, so they've established a very positive emotional connection. And at some point he told her, listen, I'm just not attracted to women. And they come to me and say, well, can this work? Um, And one of the things I say to them is you both need to realize that neither of you will really have sexual satisfaction in this relationship. And that's a a high price to pay. You're both young, you're both full of hormones, and this is not going to be great for either of you. The book is in English. Why did you write it in English and and not in Hebrew originally? It's our first language. Both Jenny and I, that's, that's our first language. It's easier for us to write it in English. And when we realized that we did have something that seemed to be going well, then the natural conclusion was we should then have it translated. So it took a long time to find a translator who we thought was comfortable enough, the material, to be able to translate it without any sort of underlying discomfort within the translation itself. And I think there's only one or two more pages that need to be looked at, and we're just about done. Why was it so hard to find a translator, a Hebrew translator? Well, it's got to be someone who can be sufficiently comfortable with the English and just the language of sexuality, but also with the notions of sexuality. You know, if someone has some personal bias about oral sex, they're going to have a hard time with the translation. And did you want that translator to be uh, a part of the Orthodox Jewish community? Yes, that we did. And I think that was a, that was, um, a valuable decision on our part, because then we didn't have to explain a lot of stuff that would have happened otherwise. Do you think attitudes towards sex are changing in the Orthodox and ultra-Orthodox worlds? When I started out in the sex therapy business, one of the things we always used to say was there is nothing new under the sun. Um, and that's no longer true. There's a lot that's new in the sex world under the sun. 1959 was when the birth control pill came into the market. And that in itself was a, an amazing change, not only because it freed women up. I mean, I'm talking about that feminist perspective so much, but because it really demarcated the difference between sex for procreation and sex for fun. And now you could really have two separate worlds. Well, changes like that uh, apply to the Orthodox community as well. I mean, the fact that there, the Internet exists and there is access to sexual information that's in, instantaneous um, has also Im- impacted on the community. And as much as the community wants to try to build in safeguards, but the fact is that that information exists in a way it didn't exist before. Uh, so we've all gone through those kinds of changes, and that has certainly filtered through to the even the ultra-Orthodox community. I think one thing particularly has been is the notion that women now have that sexual satisfaction is something that they can achieve as well. And that because of that, there is a real sense of, I want this to be part of my life. Is there anything else that, I, that we didn't talk about that you'd like to, me to ask you? People always ask me what my children think of what I do. Uh, and I will tell you that my children always have had a challenge about it. What, at which date do they tell their potential partner what daddy does for a living? 
Um, but my children are cool. And anyone who doesn't like what dad does for a living is not someone that they wanted to get married to anyway. So it's worked out okay. Dr. David Ribner, thanks so much for talking with me. It's been really my great pleasure. And uh, if anyone can sort of benefit from this and you know, not be hesitant about asking for help when they need it in this very sensitive area, I think both of us have done a real contribution. Dr. David Ribner founded the Sex Therapy Training Program at Bar Ilan University in Israel and is a certified sex and marital therapist in Israel and the United States. He's also the co-author of The Newlyweds Guide to Physical Intimacy. It's out in English by Geffen Press and is soon to be released in Hebrew. Daniel Estrin is a reporter based in Jerusalem and a regular contributor to Vox Tablet. As always, we would love to hear what you thought of today's conversation. Post a comment to our site, tabletmag.com, or email us at podcast at tabletmag.com. I'm Julie Subrin, the producer of Vox Tablet. Thank you so much for listening. Hope you'll come back next week.